Um, we'll have today's scripture reading, and then after that, I will be back for today's teaching. Good morning. Today, God speaks to us from Acts chapter 4, verses 8 to 14, 18, 21, and 23 to 31. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in the city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly, the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, I mentioned this uh, earlier <clears throat> in our prayer, but uh, this past Tuesday, as you probably likely know, uh, was the first of the presidential debates. Uh, and <laughs> uh, post-debate, uh, so many thoughts, uh, so many things happened that day. Um, I won't go into the long list of opinions that I have coming out of that. Uh, probably not appropriate to share them now. But in watching the debate, uh, it became so clear that we've really lost a sense of civility and decency uh, and even a sense of right and wrong. And it's just generally undermined so much of the moral credibility, right? of not only what's happening in the political sphere, but I think largely as a nation. It reflects so poorly uh, on us as a nation. <laughs> kind of, this is a side note. I don't know when arrogance became a virtue, but somewhere along the line it did. Um, I'll just stop there. But one of the interesting post-discussion topics coming out of the debate uh, was really what is the difference between being bold and being obnoxious? 
What's the difference between being bold and being obnoxious? There are probably varied opinions on that question, uh, or answers to that question, but there has to be a difference between the two. And as I've reflected on that, uh, you know, it's come to mind that both boldness and arrogance, uh, they both require a level of assertiveness. Uh, They both require a level of resolve. They both require a level of confidence. And so, but if that's the case, then what is the difference? Here's what I've come down to. Here's where I've landed on this. So to be obnoxious is to be arrogant and self-serving, combative, disrespectful, and generally more interested in winning arguments than winning people. And I see this, you know, maybe maybe many of you do as well, see this a hundred times a day on social media. All right, people who very well might hold actual truth They devolve into becoming obnoxious because they prefer to win arguments instead of winning people. But to be bold is something different. To be bold is to be strong and clear and courageous and steadfast. And the best kind of boldness is when that strength and that clarity and that courage is wrapped in love and compassion and grace and truth. Or in the words of Galatians 5, boldness wrapped in the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's the best kind of boldness. And it's a boldness that desires not to just win arguments, but to win people. And with the message of Jesus, the question then becomes, how can Christians be bold with the message of Jesus and not be obnoxious with the message of Jesus. How does one develop that kind of boldness? Well, today uh, we're going to be continuing on in our series, uh, Extraordinary Through the Ordinary. Uh, It's been a series in which we've considered, uh, in the book of Acts, the ways that God has done extraordinary things through ordinary people in ordinary places, living ordinary lives, uh, because we desire to see how we, as ordinary people, can be used by God in extraordinary ways. And here in Acts 4, we get a glimpse of how we, as ordinary people, can develop an extraordinary boldness that stands firm on truth, but is marked by the fruit of the Spirit. And so I want to understand that boldness by looking first at the need for boldness, how to develop that boldness, and then the reason for the boldness. All right, so first, uh, the need for boldness, uh, we need to begin by understanding why it's even necessary to develop a sense of boldness. Uh, and here's really the reason. Boldness assumes one key reality. It assumes opposition. Look at the passage that we see. All right, look, look at our passage. Uh, I gave you a very chopped up version of Acts 4. It's a long chapter and there's a lot of narrative happening there, so I tried to cut and paste it together a little bit. Uh, But I wanted to try to capture everything that's happening because in essence, if you remember, last week uh, we looked in in Acts 3 that Peter and John had healed a lame man at the temple gate. Uh, And what we saw was that though this was a miraculous healing uh, in this miracle, the miracle was actually not the manifestation of God's power at work, his full manifestation at work, but rather the message of the healing which was ultimately that God was going to uh, restore the cosmos through the work of Jesus, that that was the actual power of God at work. And so Peter makes that clear in a sermon that he preaches 
to all those that, have list, that were listening and had gathered together as a result of this miraculous healing. And essentially what he says in the sermon is he says to this group of people, you killed Jesus, your Messiah, but he rose from the dead, and so now you must repent of your sins that you might be saved. Right? That was, in essence, his sermon. Now, as a result of that sermon, they were seized, they were thrown into prison, and they were brought before the religious leaders who demanded to know how they were able to heal this man. Now, Peter's response is pretty much half of chapter 4, uh, but the most direct statement of their message is in verse 12. Look at verse 12. Verse 12 says, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Right? That was his message, in essence. And as a result of that message that he proclaims to these religious leaders, look at verse 18. It says that they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Okay, so Peter preaches Jesus, and then he's told, knock it off. Now what's going on here? Why are they so upset about this message of Jesus? Well, there's two dynamics happening at the same time. The first is this, is that these religious leaders are calling Peter and John out about their claims about the Messiah. These leaders, they certainly believed that there was to be a Messiah, but as we've considered before in, our, in the series, the dominant belief about who the Messiah was was different than what they were proclaiming, what Peter and John were proclaiming. Because what the uh, religious leaders at the time and many of, uh, many of the people expected was that when the Messiah came, he was going to overthrow Rome. And he was going to make Israel this powerful nation again. And so their error was born out of this nationalistic idolatry that assumed that political power was the mark of God's favor on them as a people. And make no mistake that that was back then and is currently today an idolatrous assumption that will tempt many. But of course, this was not what Jesus came to do. This was not what he sought to accomplish. Jesus did not come to save Israel only, but rather to save all people, all nations. And so for the religious leaders, the claim about a Savior that would not overthrow their enemies, but rather save their enemies, was incredibly offensive to them. For Jewish leaders 2,000 years ago, for Christians today, it is worth noting that the message of Jesus will be in opposition to those who have alternative loyalties, like nationalistic power. And so you've got that whole, that whole religious thing happening there. But then there's another dynamic that's taking place here. Because the message of Jesus is not going to only put uh, um, the religious leaders in opposition to Jesus, but the secular ideology that existed then uh, also refused to acknowledge these truths about Jesus. Especially these truths of univer this universal truth um, claim that's being presented. I mean, consider the socio-political, socio-religious culture of the day here in our passage. So the Roman Empire was an incredibly diverse and pluralistic society. Honestly, a lot like ours today. I mean, one of the, the approaches to the Roman uh, conquering of, of the known world at the time was that they gave people the freedom to worship the gods that they desired to worship. 
right? They didn't dictate to the people who they ought to worship. They let them have their own gods to worship. Uh, and what's interesting to me is as you consider that ideology of 2,000 years ago, in essence, Rome was very much your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth. They were that kind of a society. So lest we assume that we've evolved into that, it's a very old perspective. But the only caveat that they had was that freedom, uh, the only caveat that they had to that freedom, rather, was a requirement that you could worship whoever you wanted, but you had to add Caesar to the list of gods that you worshipped. Now this became extraordinarily problematic for the early Christians because they refused to acknowledge any other god but Jesus. And we're going to see that this becomes a real problem for them because it creates a major tension in Acts 19. We'll get there at some point where the message of Christianity ends up sparking a riot in Ephesus because people were so furious with the apostles' teachings. And here's why. Here's why all of that becomes a problem, both back then and today. In a pluralistic society, claiming and proclaiming truth will always lead to some kind of opposition. And the message of Jesus is a truth claim that transcends all other truth claims, specifically that salvation is found in no one else but Jesus. This, of course, is the bedrock claim of Christianity, and yet, in ever-growing pluralism, that claim will be very problematic for those that hold it. In our current culture, in our current time, we would be considered uh, by many uh, a postmodern culture, a postmodern world. And one of the consequences of being within this postmodern world is a general rejection of all universal truth claims. Right? The belief that there are truths that we all must submit ourselves to. And Jesus' claims that, you know, no one can come to the Father but through him, that every knee will bow one day before him, that salvation is found only through him, those claims don't work in a postmodern, pluralistic society. Because from a postmodern worldview, such claims cannot be trusted, they need to be rejected, and enlightenment is only found in rejecting and questioning all that we once held to be true. Now, in that, that's a very over, uh, overly simplistic understanding of postmodernism. I know that any philosophy uh, people out there would probably have a lot to say about that. But in essence, that's essentially what postmodernism asserts. That's the philosophy, the worldview. Now, the consequence of that is significant. Because for some, uh, the philosoph some philosophers who look at postmodernism, they would actually say that postmodernism and this, this inability to see universal truths as one of the environments for why the whole notion of fake news has become so prominent in our culture. Uh, specifically, that it's, it's easy to just deny facts as fake because of a refusal to affirm that any truth that does not align with my preference can just be disregarded. Uh, but it's also created an environment of incredible inconsistency. Because postmodernism makes truth claims while also, at the same time, rejecting all truth claims. Let me explain to you what I mean by that. Um, we all have very narrow beliefs. All of us, everyone does, has very specific things about what we believe to be true. So if one says 
that I reject that Jesus is the only way of salvation because that's just too narrow of a belief, uh, but rather I believe that all gods lead to the same place. I wonder, what is that statement to you? I mean, is that statement that all gods lead to the same place not a universal truth claim? Of course it is. Right? And so the question isn't whether or not we all hold universal truth claims. We all do. The question is, does our truth universally apply to all people? Meaning, a universal truth claim had better be able to transcend the boundaries of time and culture. And if your truth claim only makes sense to those in your very limited cultural moment, I'd really suggest reassessing it. I'll give you an example of what I mean. There are those who uh, currently, right now, claim and have claimed for many years that religion, and in particular Christianity, was going to die off. Right? So we, we live in this scientific age, and as a result, we're just going to leave religion behind. And in a sense, the truth claims are uh, that religion will no longer be needed, and people will no longer seek after, because now we have this scientific age. But what's interesting about that is that, of course, it's, that's a truth claim. It's believing something to be true. But the majority of the world, here's what's interesting about that. The majority of the world, the vast majority of the world, rejects that to be true. Religious belief in Christianity is far from being rejected or dying off. Rather, all over the world, it grows and expands rapidly, even in our new scientific age. I mean, if you want to know where religion is dying off, it's largely only dying off again, um, in white Western people and cultures. That's about it. In fact, to be blunt, the assumption that religion, and especially Christianity, is dying off has become another form of white supremacy and arrogance, honestly. Because non-white people, non-Western people, know it's nonsense. Now that was a little bit of a rabbit trail, so let me bring this all together. Why am I rambling on about this postmodernism? Uh, the reason being is that in a world like what Peter and John were in, in a world like ours, there are several approaches that we can have when, we come in, when people come in contact and in conflict with the truth claims of Jesus. Here's three ways that we could inevitably play out. This could play out. First, we can capitulate and succumb uh, by submitting to another truth claim. So we can reject Jesus and we could submit to some other truth claim a claim that is likely conditioned by our culture and our limited scope, but that's one way you could do it, just reject Jesus altogether. Another approach to Jesus' truth claims is that we can hold to the convictions about who Jesus is, but then we can become obnoxious with that claim. Meaning, don't know if you know any, but um, Christians can be very arrogant, very self-serving, very combative, very disrespectful, very generally more interested in winning arguments than winning people. And they can do that with the truth about Jesus. So that's another way we could go. A third way, a better way, though, could be, to bring this back to where we started, we could become bold with this message. That Christians can hold to what they say they believe to be true, but to do it with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And so the question then becomes, how do we develop that kind of boldness with this message, this exclusive 
universal truth claim of Christ. Let's consider that. Uh, so if Jesus is who he says he is, the Son of God who takes away the sins of the world, the way, the truth, the life, the one who will come back one day to judge all of, uh, all of us and one day restore and redeem all that is broken, if that is all true, how do we hold that kind of truth claim without either capitulating, you know, just rejecting, or holding it and becoming obnoxious? Well, there's three crucial elements here in chapter 4 that I think we need to consider about how we develop boldness. I'll just give them to you on the front end, and we'll talk a little bit about each. You cannot be bold without community, without the Word of God, and without His Spirit. Okay? Community, the Word of God, His Spirit. Let's look at those quickly first. Community. Uh, Let's get back to our passage. Look at verse 23. Let me reread that for you. It says, On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Do you see what happened there? Boldness often requires the strength that God provides through community. A community of fellow believers who are also seeking to be bold. The very first people, people that Peter and John went to after they had been released was back to their brothers and sisters in Christ. Willie Jennings, who's a man who's been um, incredibly formative for me, in his commentary on the book of Acts, he puts it this way. He said, indeed, there is no such thing as individual boldness for the uh, followers of Jesus. Of course, each disciple can and must be bold. But their boldness is always a together boldness, a joined boldness, a boldness of intimacy. See, Christian community cannot be Um, underestimated. You know, I've said this before and I'll say it again. The Bible has absolutely no categories for a Christian who is not part of a Christian community, particularly the church. There's no category for an individual walled-off Christian. This is why church membership for us is more than just some formality. It's actually deeply important to a Christian growing as they ought to. And I will just say this, um, for some of you, you're coming to our Intro to Redeemer East Harlem class, which is one of the steps in our membership class. Uh, we're having that class today after service. Uh, we still have some room if you want to join. We also have some people that are going to be joining by Zoom. And so if you're interested in that, um, you can certainly reach out and we'd, we'd love to have you. So just that's a side note. Um, but church membership is not like other memberships where you are, uh, it's transactional. It's not like Costco, where you give them something, they give you something. Rather, church membership is actually a covenant bond that you are making with other believers within a particular congregation. You make vows to one another. At least that's the way we do it. We're making promises to one another to commit to supporting one another, to holding one another accountable, to being on mission together. And it's those kinds of commitments that produce a boldness when we're in proximity with others who have promised to do the same. Solidarity with like-minded people is one of the most powerful tools to discover a resolve to accomplish something. And so if you want to be a person who is bold with the message of Jesus, this universal truth claim, you must be in community with others. A community formed by Jesus himself. 
The second thing that we see here is not only do we need community, but we also need the Word of God. Boldness requires the Word of God. Look at uh, verses 24 through 30. I won't reread all of that. But essentially what's happening there is that they pray a prayer together, it says. And all throughout that prayer, it is clear the extent to which they are deeply immersed in Scripture. They call, there they start by calling out to the Sovereign Lord in verse 24, which is a term uh, with deep Old Testament meaning. It's rooted in the absolute uniqueness of God and His rule. And then later on in verse 24, they reference the creative power of God by quoting Psalm 146. They again speak of his rule and his power and the meaninglessness of resisting uh, his rule in verses 25 and 26. And they do that by quoting Psalm 2. In verse 27, they speak of Jesus being anointed, which is a reference to Isaiah 6. In verse 30, they speak of God stretching out his hand, which is language that is pulled from Exodus 6 and Numbers 14 and Jeremiah 1. And at the end... In verse 30, they reference Jesus as a servant, which harkens back to Isaiah 53. Their language is deeply formed and shaped by the language of Scripture. Boldness requires being immersed in the Word of God. So much so that our language is deeply shaped by it. I mean, what is shaping your thinking what is shaping your language? You know, as a pastor, this, this matters a lot to me. It's why we do some of the things that we do. When we spend time uh, on Sundays during these sermons, usually I'm going to be preaching through a book of the Bible because I want us to understand the Word of God. Often I'll draw in a bunch of other scripture references because I want us to see the cohesion of the Word of God. I want us to know the scriptures. When we sing, it's important that we sing biblical language. Why? Because it's not just the word of God for, for our lives, but it's also the word of God which produces this boldness of faith. And why would we rely on anything else? We have the power of the word of God. And then look at verse 29. It says, Now, Lord, consider their, their, their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Right, I want you to know what God's word says about salvation. I want you to know what God's word says about holiness and righteousness and justice and equity. And I want you to, to know what it means to experience salvation and to live lives of holiness and to pursue justice, but also to boldly proclaim the word of God in words and in deeds, and boldness requires knowing his word. The last thing. Neither of those things that we just looked at are actually sufficient in and of themselves. Remember where we started. I made a distinction between boldness and obnoxiousness. Well, one can be a Christian and be in Christian community, be part of a church, and also know the Bible really, really, really well, and still be incredibly obnoxious with the truth claims. And I've seen this time and time and time again. Frankly, I fall into this personally at times. Christian leaders and their followers can be arrogant and self-serving and combative and disrespectful and generally more interested in winning arguments than winning people. Why? Because they know the Word of God really well 
And then they spur each other on in their arrogance in the midst of Christian community as they proclaim that word. But here's the problem. They don't do so with love. This is what Paul is getting at in 1 Corinthians 8 when he says that knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Right? Knowledge and community are useless without love. And what gives us love? It is housed in verse 31. This is where we go from being obnoxious with our message to boldness. Verse 31 says this. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Being filled with the Spirit of God is what turns us from arrogance and obnoxiousness to love and boldness. When the Spirit is at work in us, what happens? It is what we've said already several times today. It's the fruit of the Spirit that comes. Where love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control become our boldness. Imagine if Christians, together as one, were proclaiming the Word of God in the power of the Spirit with boldness in a way that is loving and patient and kind and gentle and self-controlled. You know what that kind of boldness would produce? It would produce a movement that changes the world. And we're seeing how that boldness affects the world all throughout the book of Acts. But I think probably the best example of how it changed the world back then is found in Acts 17. In Acts 17, you see this story, and again, we'll get to it later on in the series. But do you know how the opponents of the Christians referred to them? What, what was said? The opponents of the Christians said, uh, referred to them by calling them those who turned the world upside down. I mean, this is what happens with spirit-empowered boldness. The world is turned upside down. Everything changes because now the message of Jesus is being presented in a way that becomes compelling to those who hear. The message of Jesus is wrapped up in that love and that joy and that peace and that gentleness. I mean, this becomes powerful. And so I wonder, and I, I ask you this, do you want that? I mean, Christian, do you want to see your worlds turned upside down by the message of Jesus? I mean, do you want your family and your friends and your workplaces and your neighborhood and your city and your nation to experience that kind of upside down turning? Right? The world has never been the same for the better since the boldness of Acts 4. And if you want that, then I encourage you to consider what it means to grow in boldness by being part of community, being centered on the Word of God, and trusting that the Spirit is at work in us, asking the Spirit to show us the ways that we have not fully embraced and embodied His fruit. The last thing I want to say, just briefly, but it's important, is that lest we forget the reason why this kind of boldness is even possible, we are a church community because of Jesus. Right? So we can come together in community because those who were, not, were once not a people have now become a people. The most diverse group of people that has ever existed on the planet is the Christian church. 
No other world religion or secular ideology can claim anything remotely close to the sustained diversity of people that have come together. We have all been brought together as one people. Jesus alone accomplishes that diversity so that now we can grow, develop, serve one another well. We are centered on the Word of God because, according to John 1, Jesus is the Word of God. The Word of God shapes us into the image of Jesus because Jesus is that very Word. And when we are in His Word, when we are with Jesus, I want you to know that we do not leave the same when we hear and embrace and live out His Word. And finally, we can be filled with the Spirit of God because, as we've seen, our ascended resurrected Savior who now sits on the throne has sent us his Spirit. The Spirit, as we trust him to do so, works in us and works through us. It's the life, the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus that is our salvation. It's the message that we proclaim to a world that we believe needs to hear it. It's the hope of the world. And so I pray that we all become bold And we do so in a way that honors Christ and his message. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the work of your son. The work that has transformed us, that has given us life. And we thank you that you have given us the privilege of being those who are now called to go out and proclaim that message. And to proclaim it in a world that will often reject it, uh, will often deny any kind of claim to um, some universal truth. But God, we believe it to be the case, that this is the message that all people need. And Lord, we need your help to be bold, not obnoxious, but to be bold with this message. And so would you help us to more fully embrace Christian community, and may your spirit be at work in that community that we all might serve each other well. Would you help us to center our lives on the word of God, your word? Would you help us to be immersed in it, shaped by it? May our language reflect it. And God, I pray that you would fill us anew with your spirit. For none of it matters if we do not have your spirit working powerfully in us. God, would you weed out that which is Uh, dishonoring to you, and would you replace it with the fruit of the Spirit? Again, that we might honor Jesus and his message and be bold in our proclamation of it. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.